Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share all that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brandon, it is Sunday, March the 26th, um, recording a little bit early today, but uh, I, I'm pretty excited with, with what we got going. Why don't you tell the people what we're talking about this week? Well, we're recording early because we have a great guest on this week. We're joined by really a legendary Boston, Massachusetts, New England journalist and Dan Ray. We'll give a, a bigger introduction when he comes on, but Dan's been in in the business for half a century at this point. He was a TV reporter in Boston for three decades. He's been on a national radio show for the last two decades, and so we're, we're really lucky to be joined by him, and we're excited to hear some of the, his stories. We, we asked him on for a couple of reasons, one with President Carter entering hospice, he's one of Dan's claims to fame is that he's he's interviewed every every president since Gerald Ford. So we're going to get like a hopefully a personal reflection about um, Dan's interactions with President Carter, which I just there's there's not many people to go to that like has have personal stories about that. So I think that's really unique and, and really cool. And then uh, obviously having been in media for so long, Ricky, you and I are, are new at this, but wanted to hear his perspectives in some ways for almost like a learning purpose to hear his thoughts on how media has evolved over the course of his career. And, you know, if, if he thinks that there's, there's still, there's still room for, for true, true dis- gentleman's disagreement, like, like we have here. Yeah, definitely excited for it. Um, and yeah, can't wait to get into it. And before what we won't make you wait too long because the, the real star of the show is, is Dan. And so we'll get right into it. But before we do, um, quick reminder that the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Ricky, I've been making so many wood puns lately that I thought it would be better just to branch off into a different topic this week. So, and so we got, I got no actual pun for you. Um, and with all that said, let's bring on Dan. Let's do it. All right. We are now thrilled to welcome Dan Ray onto the program. Dan is a veteran Boston TV journalist. He's a member of the Massachusetts Broadcast Hall of Fame. He is currently the host of Nightside on WBZ News Radio 1030, which is every weeknight from 8 to midnight. That's a program that focuses on a wide variety of issues, political, economic, social. He, he Dan likes to refer to it as North America's virtual back porch. Uh, it's a program that encourages conversations with diverse ideas from different perspectives, which was why we thought Dan would be a perfect guest on this podcast. Prior to becoming the the host of Nightside, Dan was a TV journalist for 31 years here in Boston and in New England. Uh, he's been the recipient of numerous awards, including the prestigious Yankee Quill Award, which is the award which is considered the highest to be individual honor to be awarded by fellow journalists in new england he's also a boston latin school guy a boston college guy and a bu law guy so he'll continue ricky our our now long-running tradition of having bu graduates on on the program but uh dan thank you so much for joining us today thanks very much john gentlemen boston state college no oh. bc i was not an eagle never an eagle uh Played against BC High a lot, but no, I was a Boston State College, Boston which is now State. UMass Boston. Yeah. yeah, look at that. All right, um, all right. Well, Dan, thank you again, again for joining us. And so, what I want to start off for people that don't know you would love to talk about how you got in. So again, we we got law school, and then you end up into a career in journalism. So can you just talk about how you got into journalism originally? Well, I actually was really lucky. But by the way, Brendan and Ricky, nice to meet both of you. I got a couple of 
uh, things here on my computer that keeps clicking. I get rid of those. I promise. Um, I got very lucky to be honest with you. Um, I didn't have a traditional um, path into journalism. I was in law school. Um, I had been, I'd been writing some pieces for the Boston Globe, some op-ed pieces uh, for a couple of years. And one of my law school classmates told me in my, this was my second year of law school. Uh, by the way, those of you who guys are in, I think at least one of you is in law school, maybe both of you are in law school. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay, both. Uh, and um, uh, the, the, the saying is that the first year they uh, scare you to death, second year they work you to death, and third year they bore you to death. Anyway, uh, so I was at, in my second year and uh, this classmate of mine said to me, hey, you know, Boston, BUR, which was not a BUR national public radio station. It was a local Boston University station at the time said, you can host an hour show. Uh, you don't get paid. But so I did an hour show every Monday night for a year for WBUR. And um, shortly thereafter, WBZ Radio had a Saturday night opening still while I was in law school. And I started my broadcast career at W, well, really at WBUR. Never got paid. Um, and probably it was what I was worth at the time. And uh, then slid over to Saturday nights. Most of my um, Saturday night dates in my mid-20s, uh, I, I'd bring my date to the um, studio. Exciting date, I guess. I never had too many second dates. No, only kidding. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, you know, have a late dinner after the show. And, uh, and, and then I get out of law school and I was practicing law. Uh, and all of a sudden TV realized that I was a lawyer and they made me WBZ's first and only as it turned out legal editor. Uh, Murray Feingold was the first medical editor. Uh, was, was a great guy, the late Murray Feingold. And, uh, in 1976, which was the year of the bicentennial, I asked if they needed any help with like with a, a weekend reporter and the assistant news director said, yeah, we're looking for a weekend reporter. And I became a staff member at WBC for 31 years, less five days, but who was counting? Yeah. I just yeah. kind of talked my, you can't do that today, guys. No, no. <laughs> I mean, Ricky and I know well about doing this for no money. Uh, so right. we That's have okay. pretty, it's fun. Yeah. No, it, it is fun. Exactly. And I, who knows? I don't think uh, we'll, we'll have such a career, but it, it's pretty cool. So Dan, you've been doing this now, like you said, for 50 years almost, and I would love to hear your perspective on how media has changed because it's changed so much in so many ways, but in terms of just like the conversations that you have, what are some of like, kind of like the, the broad big picture takeaways you have in terms of like how media has evolved in the last half century? Well, the, the broad big picture takeaways are you guys, believe it or not. Uh, it's podcasters. Um, yeah. the, 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 the media runs on advertising and the pie is only so big. And in the old days, there were so many slices, three major TV stations in Boston, four, five, and seven. That's all changed. Um, radio stations, when I started, FM was like something you just listened to for music. There was no advertising on FM radio, believe it or not, in the 70s, or very little. And then they grew their audience just as the podcasts are now trying to grow their audience. Uh, and um, what happens is that the, the pie has more slices and the slices are all thinner. Mm -hmm. And that's why you see a lot of people now working in television, coming into Boston, staying one or two years and then going into public relations or something like that. Um, I don't know how many people will end up having a career as long as I've had uh, from this generation of people who are breaking in today. How do you feel like... Um... I think we talk a lot about like objectivity in media and obviously I think the market that you were addressing um, potentially a little bit smaller. I'm curious if that gave you sort of more freedom to cover stories that you're interested in or because it was such an advertising driven uh, industry, were you kind of limited from that perspective or how, sort of how do you feel about the evolution of objectivity in media? Well, I think objectivity is objectivity. Um, and when I was a TV reporter, no one knew uh, or no one was supposed to know what I thought. I interviewed people. It was always funny for me. Uh, I interviewed people uh, many times, particularly 
presidential candidates uh, because New Hampshire was so important every four years. Um, and you'd have a vision or a, a view of someone uh, and you didn't agree with them politically, but you still were very objective uh, and, and how you covered it. And the thing that I found interesting was kind of like a quadrant. If you had take any person, public figure who you're going to interview, uh, did you agree with what their positions were or what their interests were? Sometimes you did, sometimes you didn't. And then the, the second um, sort of category was their personality. So sometimes you'd interview somebody who you really admired or you thought you would agree with, but they were a jerk and you were very disappointed. It was like meeting somebody who you believed in and you, know, you got to see them up close and personal and they were a jerk. Sometimes you'd meet someone who you didn't agree with they turned out to be a really nice person. And you said, wow, you know, this, I can disagree with this person, but they're quite nice. Um, one person who uh, I felt that way about was uh, George McGovern. He was a presidential candidate in 1972, long before you guys were born. Um, and he was a real nice person. I met him much later in his career, but I was really taken by what a nice person he seemed to be, irrespective of whether or not he and I agreed politically. As a talk show host, I don't have to be objective. Hmm. I try to be fair, meaning uh, I want, if for my own interest, I want a bigger tent. I want more people in the tent at the circus, whether they agree with me or not. And that's why I encourage people to come on. Whether, and I have guests who come on who I disagree with. I had a guy on last week talking about legalizing psychedelic mushrooms here in Massachusetts for recreational purposes. Now it may come as a surprise to you and maybe your audience, but I would not be in favor of legalizing <laughs> psychedelic mushrooms. Um, but this, this guy was very sincere. You know, he's convinced that there's medical benefits to people who are alcoholic or suffering from PTSD. And of course the question then is, well, why not just do medical psychedelic, psychedelic mushrooms like follow the same course of medical marijuana well there a lot of this stuff is homegrown and um if you don't make it available then people won't be able to afford it so yeah i know, the, you know where his where his mind was but he was sure. a very persuasive guy didn't persuade me but it was it, it's always fun to have those conversations with people you disagree with well, we couldn't agree more about that, but I think Aaron Rodgers would would be in favor of of, of whatever that guy was saying. Uh, but so, Dan, one of the things that you're kind of famous for is that you have interviewed every president since Gerald Ford, and which is remarkable and just a very cool thing for you and a feather in your cap. But with President Carter entering hospice a, a few weeks ago. You know, obviously he's lived a wonderful life, but his his life is, is winding down. And I'd be curious, like any reflections you have, either personal reflections from talking to him or uh, he he seems, or just like historical reflections. He seems in many ways like a forgotten president um, for people of our generation, at least. And I'd be curious just to to hear your thoughts about him. Yeah, so you're saying he might be the Chester A. Arthur of the 20th century? No, I think that that's a really <laughs> fair comparison, right? Like, I think when people like are naming presidents, like he's one that, who, who was it right there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he was pretty consequential. Uh, right. And I think that um, uh, he obviously has the distinction of being the oldest living president. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think he'll make 100, but he came pretty damn close. Um, really nice guy. Um, I am... Um, Voted for him in 1976 because I thought Gerald Ford was wrong in um, pardoning Richard Nixon. Uh, I was a young lawyer, like a couple of people here, uh, prospective lawyers. And I thought, eh, you know, that's that was incorrect. I think in retrospect, Ford was correct in what he did, because I think it just kind of had to um, heal that wound and move past it. Um, but um, but I met Carter in New Hampshire when he was a candidate. I had met him before that at the state house in 1975 when he was running for office he was like one percent in the polls yeah. and um i was working at that time for the right out of law school for the state treasurer of the commonwealth of massachusetts robert uh, crane bob crane who was a great guy and crane was this longtime incumbent he served as state treasurer for oh god had to be 25 years almost 25 years and really good guy so this one day uh, he grabs me uh, and I was out of, fresh out of law school on his staff. And he says, hey, you got one job today. 
there's this guy coming around. He's a governor from the South. I have no idea who the hell he is. And my job is I don't want to see him. So if he shows up, just tell him I'm not here. <laughs> okay. So um, uh, he leaves. About it is a true story. About two minutes later, in walks the then lieutenant governor of the Commonwealth, who's Tommy, Tommy O'Neill, who's Tip O'Neill's son. And um, Tom and I were friends. Um, he did go to Boston College, but I didn't. And um, so he's got Carter. And I recognize Carter because, you know, his name was being bandied about, but he was like a 1% pot in the polls. And Tom, Tommy says to me, he says, oh, great, Dan, you're here. Um, I'm going to just leave um, Governor Carter with you. He wants to meet the state treasurer. And I, I said, well, gee, the treasurer's not in right now. He says, don't worry, Governor Carter's willing to wait because Carter had nothing to do. So <laughs> I sat down with Carter, going to the big office, the treasurer's office, I'm sitting behind the desk and Carter's on the other side. And we talked about baseball and we talked about peanut farming and we talked about everything I could think of. And an hour later, finally, Crane comes in through like the back door of the office, secret pathway door. And I look up and he sees me and he's looking at me and he's going, <laughs> meaning no way, get him out. So of course I do what any responsible, you know, young staff person would do. I said, governor, look who's here. <laughs> <laughs> so at that point, Graham went from, you know, like, hey, nice right. to see you, governor. How are you? Hey, hey, how are you? He stayed in, I said, I'll leave you two alone. Stayed inside for two minutes, walks out with his arm around Carter. I'm with you all the way, governor. I don't think Bob really even knew who the hell he was. I'm with you. You got my endorsement. Carter sends him a handwritten letter the next day, which I go to give to Crane. He said, you don't want that one. I gave it to him the day that Carter was inaugurated about 15 months later. <laughs> and then I got to meet Carter. I got to go to Carter to, um, uh, to Plains, Georgia in 86 when Carter was at the depths of being out of office and he was Habitat for Humanity. Really nice guy. We spent half a day in Plains, Georgia um, with him. Just struck me as a very decent human being um, and the victim of circumstances. I mean, he happened to be president when our military was at its weakest post-Vietnam, Iranian hostage crisis, OPEC oil crisis, everything kind of worked against him. And he gave that dumb speech where he talked about the American, the malaise of the American people. And that kind of, you know, sealed his fate. But, and he also had a tough primary from Teddy Kennedy. Yep, yep. And, and that hurt him immensely. And Ronald Reagan um, beat him and it was morning in America. Yeah, it's a fascinating kind of time presidentially. And, and, but I think Carter, to your point, is kind of like at this point, universally acknowledged as a, a much better person than he was a, a president. And I don't know if that's totally fair to him because of the circumstances that you said. But um, yeah, he, he seems in some ways to be a bridge between like the Nixon years and, and the Reagan years. And like, I, I think that's. Yeah. Well, the other thing about Carter, which is to me was interesting, um, is that when he was president, you know, presidents have a lot of things to do. He was the guy who apparently kept the log on who could use and when they could use the White House tennis courts. <laughs> He's like, this is this. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll handle this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that could have been a staff person could have assumed yeah. that that duty, but yeah. but he did do. He had the 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 Sadat. He he won the Nobel Peace Prize, if I recall correctly, for Sadat Menachem um, Begin meeting and all of that. So, you know, and so he got the Nobel Prize, if I'm not mistaken, and Sadat got assassinated. So. You know, he got the better part of that deal. Yeah, sure. I, yeah, I think he won the Nobel Prize in, in 2002. And, and quite honestly, well-deserved. He's, he's lived an incredible life and uh, service. Especially. I don't know. Was that Maybe that was not for the, the peace deal. Maybe I don't think I'm it was. Correct on that. Okay. Yeah. I, I stand corrected. I make mistakes all the time. Well, I mean, it's the yeah, radio host. You know, you're, you're talking four <laughs> hours a night. You know, it's like, of course, you're not going to be perfect. Ricky and I get that. We we record one, two hours a week, and we make mistakes all the time. So That's we Okay. <laughs> Um, I, I, well, I wanted to circle back on one of the things that you mentioned about sort of your re-reflection on uh, Ford pardoning Nixon. I think it's a really interesting kind of parallel to what's yes, going it on is. today. Yes, it and is. yeah, curious what you think about sort of this new indictment of Trump and kind of what, yeah, uh, you know, you had a feeling about what Ford was doing back in back when he did it. But yeah. upon reflection, perhaps a different perspective. I'm curious what you think about what's going on today. 
Well, I think Nixon had paid a price um, having resigned the presidency. Um, I was actually in Washington uh, covering uh, his um, his resignation uh, on for WBZ uh, back in, in the summer of 1974, believe it or not. Um, and it was a pretty dramatic moment to be in the city when that uh, announcement was made. Um, in terms of Trump, um, I think this thing in New York is a joke, to be very candid with you. Um, I think if you want to go after Trump, um, the Mar-a-Lago raid and all of that is much more serious. I think the most serious one is Georgia, where he's on the phone with Raffsberger, um, the, the Republican Secretary of State, saying, hey, you've got to find, I have to go back and, and listen to the transcript or the audio tape. You've got to find me 12,500 votes. I mean, if he, I, I have no idea if that would have done it for him, but it was almost as if he could have said, well, you can find me 12,511 votes. <laughs> you know, I think that's more troubling. Uh, I'm troubled generally. Um, in retrospect, about the idea of us uh, indicting former presidents. Because let's assume Trump gets indicted. Um, I don't think he's going to win in 2024 either way. Um, the great hope that he has, I think, is if the Democrats are crazy enough to pursue the New York indictment, I think it generates a lot of sympathy for him because that's the story he's been spinning, the yarn he's been spinning forever. And this to people not like us or your viewers, but people who casually follow it, oh, maybe the guy is right. They're going after him. So what happens if Biden gets out and the Republicans find some stuff on Hunter Biden that relates to Joe Biden? And and all of a sudden now we we have a two presidents who have come under investigation and maybe possible indictment. Uh, I, I'm very uncomfortable with that. Um, it's almost like banana Republic time. Um, if you're in, you're, you know, I just, it's troubling. I mean, I don't know enough about the Hunter Biden laptop. I've read all of that. We haven't really talked about it on Nightside because I don't feel it has percolated up to a level uh, that justifies a conversation about a laptop and speculation. I think there's probably some stuff on the laptop that the Biden family is not very happy, proud of. Sure. Okay. Sure. You know, I mean, but were there is there money? When you you know, forget Hunter's problems, their money's exchanged and all of that. I haven't gone there because I haven't almost seen, in terms of a journalistic sense, probable cause. I think there is probable cause on for 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 Trump in terms of. Georgia and maybe Mar-a-Lago, they're, they're, they're leading with their weakest yep. case. And I think that, I think Alvin Bragg is, in my opinion at this point, a rogue prosecutor. Um, and I think that he is making a huge mistake from the point of view of the Democratic Party. And for the, for the first time now, I'm thinking this grand jury might end without an indictment, which is also going to help Trump because it's going to make it look like he... He was able to stand up to the man. It just plays to his favor. What's your feeling on, like, let's say he's, I mean, I think to varying degrees, he is probably guilty of all of this stuff. But let's say it's very clear that he's guilty. What is your feeling on the idea that, similar to Ford, that he almost needs to just be pardoned and just be relegated to a part of history so that we can, you know, heal to an extent and move forward or because of the things that he did and the fact that maybe he hasn't quite paid that price because he hasn't sort of admitted doing anything wrong yeah. that we do need to pursue this. Well, Nixon never admitted doing anything wrong either. Um, no, I'm not a crook. The president is not a crook. Um, and Trump hasn't been indicted for anything yet, less um, convicted. So I think if we got to that point, he could still run for president, as I'm sure you guys know, even if he was quickly convicted. He's not going to be quickly convicted before November of 2024. So um, if all of a sudden he gets convicted, that's going to raise a whole bunch of constitutional issues in the unlikely event that he's elected president. Do they? I mean, uh, we're getting into some choppy waters there. Um, and I, I think arguably the case could be made that Nixon paid the price for resigning and Trump, um, not because of these things, but paid the price losing reelection. 
uh, in, in 2020. Um, and that he's now going to be like this guy wandering in the desert, talking about how unfair life has been to him. And that's the ultimate penalty, I guess, I, I, I would argue. It's, it's, it's very tricky. It, it, you pose the question, Rick, as if he has been indicted and or convicted for uh, meddling in the Georgia election. Uh, and, and trying to, you know, force Rasberg or whatever his name was to, you know, come up with some phony votes. Um, we're we're a couple of steps from that, but I think that's the that's the most serious charge. And if they were going to pursue something against him, go with that. Um, not this other thing, which is a misdemeanor, and in order for it to become a felony, it has to be linked to the um, uh, to the to the federal election filings. You know, the Justice Department has passed on that. I don't want to sound like I'm carrying water for Trump because I'm not. But from the legal point of view, the Justice Department passed on it. The Southern District uh, in New York federal court passed on it. Um, and Alvin Bragg, I think is kind of I think he's a rogue prosecutor at this point. I don't know if you guys agree with me, but that's what I think. And if you don't agree with me, call the show Monday night. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's great. I actually want to come back to the show, but Ricky and I talked about the the potential Trump indictment last, last week. And we actually had very similar takes on that where like, if if you wanted to go after Trump, there are reasons to do it. This seems like the worst of those reasons, but weakest, maybe not the worst, but the weakest. Yeah. I mean, I would argue both, but yeah, Yeah. (laughs) but I semantics. Yeah. Yeah. I, but then, so you've now been doing the, the talk show, like you made the transition from a, a TV journalist to a talk show host, as as you acknowledged earlier, almost 20 years ago now, right? And uh, 17, yeah, 16. Yeah, so, yeah, I'd be curious, like, how, if at all, that you have seen your talk show of like evolve in terms of like participation, has it? Because Ricky and I are obviously younger and we are coming like later to the pol- political scene. So sometimes it feels like it's, it's never been more toxic. It's never been more divided, and it feels like this is just the worst. But we're we're new. We're like in some ways we're we're new to this, and so I'd be curious your perspective. Like having done this for many years, is it as bad as it seems right now, or is this just kind of like how it goes sometimes? Um, I think it's as bad as it is uh, as it's been uh, in my lifetime. I can look back and I can see periods of time, certainly Richard Nixon, uh, his time, it was pretty toxic. He also, you know, had a war in Vietnam going on and which he had inherited from Johnson, but, but, and many, you know, Nixon had a plan to end the war. Well, um, it continued on, but you got to place the blame of Vietnam at the feet of McNamara and Robert McNamara and Lyndon Johnson, in my opinion. Um, but, you had some some tough times with uh, the first Clarence Thomas, um, uh, the Thomas nomination in 1991. Um, there, there's obviously Bush, um, uh, Iraq, uh, you know, Bush, Bush lied, people died. Um, there's you know, pretty, pretty tough language, but I think that it has never been, I think Trump being elected in 2016 as the complete outsider. I mean, you know, there's nobody else you can look back on, at least in my lifetime or in history, you know, uh, with the exception of General Eisenhower, every other political leader, uh, every other president had been a political leader of some sort. Um, John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, been the House Minority Leader, um, Jimmy Carter, a governor, Ronald Reagan, a governor, Bill Clinton, a governor, you know, George Bush, a former vice president. And then all of a sudden we hit 2016 and somehow Trump has this magic potion, which gets him elected. My view at the time was that he had the good fortune of running against the only Democrat that he could beat, which was Hillary Clinton. Not everyone agrees with me on that, but uh, as a matter of fact, a bartender at the event last night, um, we had an interesting conversation about it. I just think that Hillary was kind of toxic uh, and People said, well, let's give this guy a try. But then we saw what happened for four years. And I've said this before, and I'll say it right now. Trump had some policies which were good, um, some policies which were crazy. um, But he had a a total inability of choosing people who were, he he, he picked some people who were loyal, and he did pick some people who were competent. I mean, I, I do believe that he had some competent people in his administration. But he had very few people who were both competent and loyal. 
most of the loyal ones were heading to the door. Um, Barack Obama, President Obama, well, again, whether you agree with President Obama or not, the people who he surrounded himself were very competent and they were very loyal. I mean, Eric Holder would have stood in front of a freight train for Barack Obama gladly, okay? Um, there was a bond there. He was his wingman is what he said. I mean, um, Donald Trump had the guy from Alabama, the hell was his name, the first attorney general, senator from, <laughs> I kind of a blanking on the guy, oh God. Um, yeah, Jeff Sessions. Huh? Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions, yeah. You know, I'm Jeff Sessions. I'm the attorney general of the United States of America. Uh, and uh, <laughs> he just didn't have whatever. I mean, there was a whole, I mean, it was it was a soap opera for four years. Yeah, and I think yeah. people got tired of it. And I and that's why I don't think they'll reelect him in 2024 if the Republicans are crazy enough to nominate him. I mean, we'll, we'll certainly be keeping an eye on that. But I would hope. But has your has your audience changed like and and i guess like how have you continued as for running a program that you want to encourage diverse perspectives and have conversations with people you don't agree with and really try to listen to them it just feels like honestly like that's why in what i was reaching out to you to to come on when i was like explaining what ricky and i do like this is why we did this because it felt to us like fewer and fewer there are fewer and fewer people in spaces where people have conversations and legitimately have disagreement. And so how have you managed that in the last six, seven years? Well, I I don't know that I've managed it. I've managed it as well as I could. I mean, I basically say, hey, this is like the the metaphor is in North America's virtual back porch where people can be neighbors and friends, but have disagreements. Mm -hmm. Um, I have, it's funny. I have some people who I know listen to my show because every week or so, They'll they'll send me a, a a nasty email. You pronounced someone's name wrong, or, something, or whatever. Okay, uh, and it's like you hate my show. You yeah. told me I'm an idiot, but you listen nonetheless. Then I have the people who call, um, who really want to get into it. I have this one guy from uh, Pennsylvania, John from Pennsylvania. He's a very smart guy. I have no idea what he does, but. <laughs> He, he's not a lawyer, but he thinks like a lawyer. And he'll, he'll start off with, well, l- let me ask you this. Do you think this? Do you think that? Do you think this? And of course, he's asked you three questions. You're going to say yes, yes, and yes. Then how can you think that? And then we start. Um, but I get a lot of people who say to me, look, Dan, I don't agree with you on a lot, or I agree with you somewhat, but not all the time. But I really enjoy listening because it's civil conversation and we have people on. Um, I had earlier this month um, Maura Healy on. I happen to like Maura Healy very much personally. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're friends. Uh, I saw her last, a week ago, yesterday. We were at the, the Marianne Brett Food Pantry fundraiser uh, in Dorchester, which is one of the reasons we couldn't do this last weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a, a great time. Um, Diana Presley actually came up to me and said, when can I be on your show? And my reaction was, do you listen to my show? <laughs> uh, but she would be treated fairly if she came on. Um, the only person who has who uh, who has never shown any interest in coming on the show and has never been on the show of a major figure is Elizabeth Warren. Um, now she was running against initially a pal of mine, Scott Brown, who I knew through Scott's wife, Gail Huff, who'd been a colleague of mine at WBZ. So I had an ongoing relationship. Plus my politics are a lot more closely aligned to Scott Brown than they are to Elizabeth Warren. And I also feel that Warren is one of the most condescending political figures. How, whatever you think of her politics, she's like that person who lectures you. Yep. You need to listen to what I'm saying so you can finally understand what you need to know. Listen carefully. <laughs> And, you know, so I'm so but I had a producer um, who's a very liberal guy. He now works at WBUR, must have called her her office 20 times and um, uh, never got a call back. OK, so my daughter went to the Windsor School, the school you guys were aware of, and one of her hockey teammates from now 15 years ago turned out to be for a while Elizabeth Warren's uh, 
media rep. So um, I like very much uh, the young woman who was my daughter's hockey teammate. And I saw her name on a press release. And I won't say her name, but her full name, but her name was Lacey, her first name. So I called her up and I said, hey, Lacey, this is Mr. Ray. Hey, Mr. Ray, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. Um, Lacey was like the nicest kid on Katie's hockey team. Um, good player. And whenever I'd be driving kids home from practice or from a game, uh, as, as Brendan, I, I'm sure, knows that, you know, parents would kind of do the double duty or whatever. And all the girls would be sitting there. Now, they're 14, 15, 16-year-old girls. And I'm driving them home. Katie's in the front seat. Three of them are in the back. And um, the, the girls are very quiet. Unlike teenage boys, they're very <laughs> quiet in that set of circumstances. They're not quiet when they're on their own. But Lacey would be, Mr. Ray, turn up the radio. Let's get the tunes going. So I called Lacey. I said, Lacey, are you really working as Liz Warren's PR? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got, got the job. I said, well, do me a favor. Never tell Warren that you know me, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Someday, someday, perhaps. I don't think so. No, I don't (laughs) think so. I I, I emceed, um, I think it was Mike Dukakis' 80th birthday um, a few years ago. And Warren and her husband sat at the same table with me uh, and, um, and Mike and Kitty Dukakis. She never even looked at me. And I never, we never even exchanged the, the, oh, nice to meet you. None of that. <laughs> so, so maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. But yeah, again, yeah. I do, I, I do uh, very much respect her Native American heritage. <laughs> <laughs> How crazy do you have to be to do a, 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 a DNA test? <laughs> yeah. When, yeah. when you know that you have no Native American heritage <laughs> in reality. <laughs> Anyway, that's yeah, not, not the most politically expedient move. Um, yeah. All right, so before before we let you go, I I, okay. um, I think one of the cases that you're sort of most well known for in your journalistic career was was this case about Joe Salvati. I'd yeah. I'd love for you to give a, a you know for our listeners who do, who don't know the case uh, just a little bit of a an overview of of what happened and your involvement in it. Um, but then I'd also like to talk about kind of what you, how, how, if at all, that sort of made you think about um, kind of the American justice system, kind of as a, as a sort of a self-prescribed uh, conservative, conservative libertarian. I think one of the things that like I talk with Brendan a lot about are our principles and our institutions and how they endure. Um, but then we have these sort of moments where we kind of take pause. So I'm, I'm yeah, curious about the whole thing, but I'll, I'll let you take it. Okay, I'll, I'll try to be as quick as I can because it's a very complicated story. Um, uh, Joe Silvati w- was the guy who, along with three others, uh, was charged and convicted for a murder they had nothing to do with. Um, your parents, if they were alive at the time in 1965, um, were as much involved in the murder of Edward Teddy Deegan as these four men. Um, all of them except Salvati, did have a status within the mafia. So this was the, one of the, the progenitors of the uh, predecessors of the Bulger-Flemmy uh, alliance of the FBI with bad guys. And so the FBI agents who were corrupt knew that this isn't a case of, um, you know, Sixth Amendment case where the, where the police officer says to somebody, open up the trunk and the guy opens the trunk and there's, you know, you know, cocaine um, and the cocaine gets thrown out because it wasn't clear view and all of that. And there was no search warrant. And, uh, and, and, and as a consequence, the case is dismissed or the case is overturned. That guy's still guilty, you know, of having the cocaine in the trunk, but he's not guilty of the crime based upon the, the, the legal system that we have. And that's a simple explanation that I, I see Brendan nodding his head. I hope I'm, I'm still current on, on what the status, of, uh, you know, discovery uh, and, um, and Fourth Amendment search and seizure would be. Anyway, um, so these guys were just convicted uh, by a guy who lied. Uh, a lawyer, a single practitioner had worked on behalf of Joe Salvati's case. Um, he just became convinced in his innocence um, for 16 years without any success. Um, the dean of my law school at that time, Ron Cass, summoned me to a meeting 
and you and you guys would understand when the dean of a law school summons you to a meeting as a command appearance. And he introduced me to um, Victor Garrow, and we teamed up. Um, I was very skeptical uh, because it's easy to say that nobody in prison is guilty. Everybody is innocent. But in fact, there are people who are innocent, um, which is not, you know, difference between not guilty and innocent. Not guilty means the government didn't prove all the elements of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt to the satisfaction of a, of a jury, a unanimous jury opinion. Um, innocence, the, no one comes back and says, how do you find, the, the judges are saying to the, the, the um, head of the jury, um, uh, how do you find, um, you know, guilty or innocent? It's guilty or not guilty. That's a distinction most people don't understand. This guy was truly innocent, um, as were the other three. They served a combined total of 109 years in prison for a crime they didn't commit. Um, and it went all the way up to the desk of J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, Hoover knew about it. He sent back commendations, promotions, pay increases for the corrupt FBI agents. It was, it was horrific. Um, we found witnesses um, who... Uh, who the guy who had got on the witness stand and lied, a guy named Joe Barboza, who became the, the, the first member. He was actually the prototype for the Federal Witness Protection Program. Um, it's, 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 we, this was, uh, I discovered um, documents which proved the innocence. The state Supreme Court in Massachusetts wrote one of the worst opinions in the world on June 12, 1995, saying that this um, newly discovered evidence didn't rise to the level for a new trial. We learn in law school all the elements of a, of a crime, how you convict someone. No one can tell me what the elements of the crime is to unconvict someone. There, uh, there's, it's, 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 it's a very amorphous area uh, to, to actually get someone out of prison. So it took four years for um, us to convince, and through a lot of my reports, Bill Weldon, the governor, to commute somebody's life sentence, which only made him eligible for parole. Um, he was given parole in 1997. He had served 30 years for a crime he had not committed, but he was still in the eyes of the law guilty of the crime. Uh, then there was a federal grand jury, uh, which was done on FBI um, activity here. It was conducted by John Durham, um, who was running the, um, the grand jury in Washington uh, during, the, during the Trump administration. Still hasn't wrapped that up yet, but whatever John Durham finds, I will believe. Um, and he found actually documentary evidence, um, 302s, um, which was sent from the FBI in Boston to Hoover's desk back and forth from 1965, which, which proved beyond a reasonable doubt that these guys were innocent. They went into federal court and the, the stupid U.S. government under George Bush was not smart enough to say, look, these guys got us red handed. We did nothing. We had nothing to do with this. It was done in 1965. Let's settle with these guys. The Justice Department fought it every step of the way. Uh, in the trial in 2007, the Justice Department never called one witness to refute anything that, that the, uh, the, the, uh, the plaintiff's lawyers had said. Judge Nancy Gurdon was the judge at the time. She ripped the Justice Department and the FBI uh, for for basically engaging in a sham of a, of a trial. She gave great credit personally to me from the bench and Victor Garrow, which was really the highlight of my career. And that day, these guys were awarded $101 million. Uh, they had served 109, million, 109 years in prison for a crime they didn't commit. Two of them had died in prison. So there were two estates and two men, Salvati and Peter Lamoni. Lamoni has since died. Salvati is still alive today. They won eventually $116 million which was Elena Kagan's last decision. She was, she was the Solicitor General be, before she was nominated by President Obama to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2010. And in April of 2010, she decided not to seek certiorari because th there was really no grounds to overturn the decision at the, at the federal court and at the federal appeals court level. So that is a, um, uh, I don't know, a, a two or three minute uh, summary of a, of a 15 year struggle which began in 1993 and ended on July 26, 2007, when that decision came in and I went to radio that night. That was, that was my last day on TV. I didn't think I could, I could top that story, so I decided to go to radio. That is a heck of a way to go out, definitely. On, I guess on reflecting on that saga from the beginning all the way to 2007, is it, you know, uh, does, I, I mean, I guess, does it make you 
is is it hard for you to think about how a, such a grave injustice was done or because of the resolution that we find like at the end of it you know i mean we think about sort of corrupt regimes across the world throwing people in prison executing them because of how this turned out in the end does it make you feel sort of good about the american justice system i i guess i mean you know it's it make me feel good but it makes me feel better um I, you know, when Silvati's kids were between the age, he had four kids between the ages of five and 12 when he went away. Um, and when he got out 30 years later, they're between the ages of 35 and 42. Uh, so he missed all of that of his kids growing up, um, missed all those birthday parties, little league games, high school graduations, whatever you want. Um, he was he was not a mafia guy. He was if the worst thing, Joe might have been a bouncer at a nightclub or something like that. But he had borrowed money from this uh, this guy who had become the um, the great informant for the FBI, um, borrowed money from one of his loan sharks, hadn't paid it back. And so um, Bob Boza said um, to, a, to a prison inmate, yeah, he says, I gave Silvati a long, dry death. Uh, because he owed me a thousand dollars, and it was his way of getting getting even with him. Uh, tough price to pay for a thousand dollars that you didn't that you didn't pay back. What it did do for me was it made me narrow my view on the death penalty. Um, and uh, I used to feel that okay, the death penalty is fine; you do a horrible crime. But on the death penalty, my view now is that one, there cannot be a scintilla of doubt about the conviction, not a scintilla of doubt. Uh, there must be also some uh, aggravating circumstances, aggravating factors. As a matter of fact, right around the time or subsequent to that, um, there was this horrible case in Connecticut where these two guys had gone into a house, tied up a doctor down in Cheshire, Connecticut. Um, I, I forget the, I think the guy's name was Phillips. I could be wrong. Tied him up. Uh, they raped his wife. Uh, raped his two daughters who were like 10 and 12 years old. They then took the wife to a local bank um, and um, to withdraw money. She somehow communicated through her eyes to the bank teller that I'm in trouble. The The police showed up and they, they went back to the house with the money. The police showed up, they surrounded the house. Um, the, these, these two criminals, career criminals, soaked the, the young girl's beds in gasoline and lit the girls on fire, which in turn let the house on fire. They then ran from the scene. They were captured running from the scene of the crime. Now, if anybody deserved the death penalty, in my opinion, it was these two guys. That very week, I believe, or that month, the Connecticut legislature outlawed the death penalty. So, you know, I know a lot of friends of mine who for religious reasons are opposed to the death penalty under any circumstances. And they normally will say to me, well, it's a greater punishment to have someone serve life in prison, you know, without parole. And what's going on, for example, now with the, the, the surviving Boston bomber, the only person who I ever know, who I've never, who I've ever heard of, who asked to be executed was Timothy McVeigh. Every other person who's under the yoke of the death penalty will always appeal, appeal and appeal. But I think, again, the standard has to be very restricted, not a scintilla of doubt. And in the Connecticut case, there was no scintilla of doubt as to what these guys had done um, and, uh, and and aggravating circumstances. And I think that is a set of aggravating circumstances. I mean, the Boston bomber, you know, uh, there were people writing love letters to this guy. Um, you, you guys know that. I hope, you know, people are sending him money for his canteen. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, anyway, that, I feel strongly about that issue, as you can tell. Sure, sure. All right. Uh, well, Dan, it's a, it's a huge credit to you for the Salvati thing and, and sticking with that. And again, if, if people want, if people didn't know Dan before this and, and are interested in his conversations, you can you can listen in on Nightside and WBZ News Radio. Again, it's every weeknight from 8 p.m. to midnight. Dan, what do you got? Anything good coming up this week? Yeah, I got Marty Walsh coming up uh, on uh-huh. um, Thursday night. It'll be his first interview with us since he took over his uh, his new position. I just happen to have my calendar here. Um, on Tuesday night at nine o'clock, I have I think the world's leading medical authority, 
on treating Lyme disease. His name is Dr. Alfred Miller. Um, his, his daughter is a friend of mine. This guy is an unbelievable guy. Um, you have any medical questions about the treatment of Lyme disease and uh, what a debilitating disease it is and what the potential consequences are neurologically of having Lyme disease and not knowing it. And the fact that um, the, the, the tests that the government prescribes for Lyme disease have an incredible false negative rating called the Western block test. You can get a negative rating 50% of the time and you actually have Lyme disease and you go on your merry way thinking you don't have Lyme disease and you live your life with Lyme disease. And this doctor believes that a lot of uh, diseases like ALS, uh, dementia and others that are neurological, the, 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 the source of it is Lyme disease. So he's a great guest. Uh, we talk with um, I don't mean to give you the whole schedule, but on a, on Thursday night, um, an ophthalmologist, Dr. Laura Fine, about eye concerns and how to take care of your eyes and how to avoid real problems with your eyes. Um, those are some of the guests that we will have this week, as well as I said, Marty Walsh, the former mayor, former secretary of labor, now director of the NHL Players uh, Union. Well, I'm sure that'll be a fascinating interview. I think, Dan, one of the the great joys that Ricky and I have had in doing this podcast over the last couple of years is that we're we're able to talk to so many people that are like experts or have like these great stories. People like you that come and join. So, I, I feel like I, I appreciate what you're saying. Like these these things. Like, oh, I get to just like talk to these people. Like that's, that's really cool. Get paid for it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. So that that's the hope for us then, someday. <laughs> so some nights you just wonder. So there are some nights. Well, they can't pay me enough. Yeah. Uh, and then there are some nights where I do it for free. Right. right. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's it's, it's, a, it's a it's a fun uh, it's a fun way to make a living. And no, I, no, I can no. do it remotely too, by the way, which is very cool. I don't have to worry about driving back and forth to work anymore. That that is very nice. Um, it's, it's like that continued evolution of media and technology. But um, all right. But again, if if you want to check out Dan, you can. Uh, he's the host at Nightside WBZ News Radio, ten thirty every weeknight, eight to midnight. Dan, thank you so much for fitting us in. We we greatly appreciate uh, your time and and uh, it's been great talking to you. So, Brendan, I have one quick question for you. Of uh, for you, Rick, too. What was the mascot for Roxbury Latin School? The fox. The fox. Yeah, my, my wife asked me that question last night, um, and. Um, we were at, the, again, it was Mark Sweeney's induction into the Holliston um, uh, Hall of Fame, former Major League ball player out of Holliston, Mass. Um, and I thought it was the Foxes, but I just, um, I wanted to be sure. So now yeah, you've confirmed it for me. I like that. I have a yeah. good source on this for my wife. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it was an yeah. Nice to meet you, Brendan, as always. Uh, I hope you're still skating, Brendan. <laughs> I, I need to get back out in the ice. Dan, it's, uh, <laughs> Brendan good. was a really good hockey player. Uh, <laughs> Toughest nails. Toughest nails. Kind of like a Brad Marchand. If you <laughs> the truth. With, with none of the skill. But no, I, I appreciate that. That's very nice of you to say, Dan. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. All right. Yeah. Have a great day, Dan. I appreciate you it. Sure. Well, that was fun, Ricky. It's. We we brought Dan on because we thought he would have some good stories, and then he had so many good stories. It was funny. We even we stopped recording, and as as always, he had he had more stories for us, and it, it's just really fun to to get to listen to him. So, what, which, if any of the stories did did you appreciate or enjoy the most? Yeah, I mean, when when you think about a you know a thirty one year career, um, thirty one is just a number, and it does, and and you've sort of forget like how much content and conversations and meetings and different things that he's he's had over over that illustrious career and then add on another 20-ish in in radio um it's it's pretty incredible and like yeah you you always say how how lucky we are um to get the guests that we do and we're you know no better example of that than than this conversation i i think the thing that i reflected on or that I was like feeling as he was telling some of those stories is just like how much things that while they seem so unprecedented in current times like how many parallels there are to other things that we've gone through and just why I don't know I feel like I feel like you feel like this too that we're such students of history and just always interested in how these things have played out in the past because 
while the experiences may be slightly different here or there, there are so many things that have happened before that are happening again today. And if we like miss our opportunities to learn lessons about them, um, yeah, I don't know that I was thinking about it definitely while he was talking about Nixon and, and, and thinking about how that relates to Trump today and kind of what we need to do as kind of a, a country to move forward. I feel very res- resolved in that. I also thought the thing that was, and now I'm really just droning, but here, here I go. The thing that's interesting to me is that, you know, while he aligns himself probably more on, on your side of the political spectrum than mine, how many things that he said today that I like completely agree with. And I feel even better about sort of my position on the death penalty now after, after hearing where he was at, because I, I mean, we've had that conversation before. I don't know how much we dove into it on the podcast, but I feel very, very similarly um, to, to, to him. Um, but anyways, yeah. What, uh, what were some of the things that stuck out to you? Well, to, to that kind of middle point you made, this is exactly why he has a show and exactly why we have a show of like, look, he, like he might identify as one way, but that doesn't mean that like we can't have real agreements on a lot of issues. And a, the, a lot of the things that he talked about, I think both you and I were like nodding along being like, yeah, I totally agree with that take. And again, why he's been so successful as, as a journalist. I did think that the Nixon Ford stuff was fascinating because like we're, he's he's a you know a radio host he he records every i mean he he broadcasts every night and for like, our podcast we we record every week and we're very much kind of prisoners of the moment and that that's fine like that's that's what we do here we don't make any like uh there's no like excuse we don't make no bones like this is what we do right you kind of you take the news as it comes and there's no other way to do it but it's it's really funny to hear his perspective of now having done this for 50 years of being like i felt this way in the moment but upon reflection i actually feel different and I think that's just how it's going to be. I think, and honestly, Ricky, for us being able to have this stuff recorded, I think it'll be cool, you know, in, in five years, 10 years to maybe look back on some of these things. Wrong on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I mean, we look back or I look back um, (laughs) like a week later. (laughs) I don't know. I'm not sure how that was happening, but that is, I feel like that's kind of the nice thing about doing things like this is being able to like, put down on paper or on some recorded media, what you're thinking in the moment. And then now I can re-examine. And that's, that's how we've always done this. Like our, the evolution of our thinking on topics is, um, is so, is so important, like coming around to each other's opinions on different things as we, as we get more information um, and as we start to see things from different sides is like, I feel like it's why we do this. And it was really cool to talk to somebody who's had that for, you know, the better part of their adult life. Yeah. And it just, it it was nice. It was refreshing in some ways to know that spaces like this still exist. So, I mean, I don't, I know like in some ways it's a niche audience, but in some ways it's a, actually a very big audience of people who are tuning into his show and are calling in or are emailing him and because like they want to engage in these conversations. And it's actually like a little bit kind of reassuring in some ways that there is actually like a large segment of people. And Ricky, you and I kind of intuitively know this, but it just, with so much of the media coverage, it doesn't seem like those are not the people that get coverage. And so it's nice to have like a show like this that exists every night and that people listen to and call in and have like legitimate disagreement and i think that's that was really cool yeah totally all right well if you enjoyed listening to dan i, I think I, I plugged it a million times but again you can listen to him wbz news radio 10 30 every weeknight from 8 to midnight and if you are a new listener to us and you enjoyed this program at all you can find us on anywhere you get your podcast apple spotify wherever you can follow us on instagram at a underscore gentlemen's underscore disagreement and as always Huge, again, huge thanks to Dan for coming on and thank you to everybody that listens. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget Where it was we began So morning's you away 
morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's hands Folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten The values sometimes being wrong Some mornings you away The morning let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give for the Hope I used to find in a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share loud American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell Full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days we'll leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. Folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share On that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz What I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because though we did not Share opinions we share On that American ideal Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.